Amen. Morning, everybody. How's it going? Everybody staying dry? Have a good, good weekend so far? Um, I would love to have you take out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel. Um, there in the Old Testament, a book we're getting pretty familiar with. This is week number five, so we're on chapter five um, in Daniel. And if you need a Bible, <clears throat> there are red ones close to you on the road that you're in, probably in the seat in front of you. And Daniel 5 in those red Bibles is on page uh, 810, 810. So this series has been interesting. This series is called Thriving in Babylon. And what we've been doing over the last five weeks is looking at the story of Daniel and how he and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, how they related to the culture of Babylon. Um, Babylon was a foreign culture. They spoke a language that was not familiar to them. They had practices and values that were not familiar to them. And Daniel and his friends had this unique role of living out this value system of the kingdom of God, a different way of living, right in the middle of Babylon. And so we've been drawing parallels to our place here and now as ambassadors of the kingdom um, of God here in our culture, uh, a culture that in a lot of ways is very similar to Babylon, to ancient Babylon. And so um, when you think about your role as being an ambassador of the kingdom, um, our role together as the church, like we can pretty quickly fall into one of two camps and, and neither of them is great. And the first camp is, uh, we'll call it assimilation. And assimilation means we're just going to mimic the values of the culture around us. Uh, we've, we've talked about it as kind of being like a stream, like you, you jump in the stream and the stream starts to flow and you just like get in the stream and you know, put your floaties on and float on down the river. And that's what we can do with the culture. And then what ends up happening, though, is that we lose our uniqueness. Do, do you recognize this tendency in your own life sometimes? life of the church, that it can be hard to say, like, wait a second, what, what makes us different from just the, the values of the people around us? What are the uniquenesses that Jesus offers kingdom of God people? And so assimilation is that first tendency, but on the other side, we can reject that. And we say, no, no, no we don't want to assimilate. Uh, assimilation, what we'll do is separation. We will we'll pull back. We don't. The current is dangerous. It's like the Arkansas River today. We actually have a river, and it's pretty dangerous. Do not be one of those people who gets rescued from the river at flood stage. Every year, somebody will go to Walmart and buy a two-dollar floaty and try to go down the river at flood stage, and it is ridiculous. So don't do that. Apologize if any of that any of those people were you last year. It's still ridiculous. Don't do it. But, so we're like, no, oh, no, the current of culture is dangerous. We don't want anything to do with it. So what do we do is separation. We pull back and, and Christians have been really good at this over the years. We just like, we, we, we put up borders and we, we create this little enclave of Christian subculture where we all listen to the same music and we wear the same t-shirts and we speak our own insider language because we don't want to be sullied by those people out there. Does that make sense? Assimilation or separation. Do you feel this tendency? Somebody just, are you awake this morning, everybody? You know, is it rainy morning? What do we need? We need some jumping jacks or something? Get rolling. Um, so we want to avoid assimilation. We want to avoid separation. The thing that Daniel calls us to do is how to be in this world, how to be firmly planted in this world, and yet how to keep our uniqueness as kingdom of God people. This is what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
Like you, you have a gift to offer, but you can only be salty if you remain salty, if you remain unique and different. But you can only add the flavor if you're actually there planted in this world. So this is what Daniel, this is what Daniel and his friends are teaching us, teaching us how to live this out in our day, in our ways. Now, we're going to talk about the story of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, um, we have this, this picture, uh, the story is depicted by this Rembrandt uh, painting from like 1635. And this is called the Feast of Belshazzar. Um, how many of you know that old Johnny Cash song, Belshazzar? Have you, have you heard that? You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. You know that song? Um, I tried to get, nobody knows Johnny Cash songs either. Um, I tried to get Glenn to sing that song as our response song this morning, but he, he, I've heard him do karaoke. He's actually pretty good at Johnny Cash. Um, you can ask him to do that, but this is, this is this painting. Now, Rembrandt, as he painted this in 1635, he was not trying to get an accurate portrayal of what we're going to talk about here in Daniel 5. Um, these people are white. And you might say, thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, these people are white. This is not what ancient Persians looked like. This is what Europeans in the 16th century looked like. And so Rembrandt, is he's pulling the story from Daniel 5, and he's making it contemporary for his audience in his day in the 1600s. Um, and, and so what Rembrandt did in this piece of art, we want to do today. We want to say, what is this story? How do we capture the essence of it? Um, and what does it speak to us today? And one of the things I love about this painting is it captures as this strange figure writes on the wall, this divine graffiti. You see the king, Belshazzar, who's just absolutely dumbfounded. You, it captures the fear, this kind of disorientation that this message has. And so as we read the text here in Daniel chapter 5, you can, you can just look at the, the artwork and listen if you want to. You can follow along if you want. I'm going to go through and just read this whole story in Daniel 5. And so, so try to stay um, engaged with this text. Powerful stuff. Now, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that his king and his nobles, uh, the king and his nobles and wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in these gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now suddenly, fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal place. The king watched the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned his enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and will have a gold chain placed around their neck. And he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men and all the king's horses could not read the get that later could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant so the king belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew even more pale and his nobles were baffled the queen hearing the voices of the king and his nobles came into the banquet hall may the king live forever she said do not be alarmed do not look so pale there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. 
Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding. And also, he had the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll be, willing, he'll be able to tell you what this writing means. So, Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel? One of the exiles, my father, the king, brought from Judah. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and to tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. And you will be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, the nations and the peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed of his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and he was given the mind of an animal and he lived in the, the wild with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is the sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and he sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had these goblets from his temple brought to you And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all of your ways. Therefore, he sent this hand and wrote this inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Persin, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The word of the Lord. So, where do we start with this? Like, what, what is this text um, from Scripture that's, you know, millennia old? What in the world does it have to say to us today in this modern world? Um, how, how do we access its meaning? How do we, how do we find it? How do we find ourselves in the story and have God's fresh word spoken to us today? Because I think there is incredible power and I think there is a word that God wants to speak to us from this text that, that can have an incredible impact on our lives. 
But I think we have to start by recognizing that we have a kingdom. I have a kingdom and you do too. You have a kingdom. Um, and, and you might say, like, what in the world does that mean? Like, I don't have a kingdom. I don't have a throne. I'm a scepter, although that would be kind of cool. You don't have a scepter. You have a remote control. It's whoever holds the remote control holds the power. That's right. That's our modern day scepter. You have a kingdom. The word kingdom, it just, it's a compound word that means king dome. A kingdom is a domain in which somebody is king. Somebody's in charge. Somebody has authority. Somebody has say so. Somebody's will is done in this domain. And you have one of those. You have a kingdom. Um, and, and so do I. And so we do good to kind of realize that, that, that we are kind of in the place of Belshazzar in this story, having a kingdom. Now, you might say, like, oh, but what, I don't quite get it. What is my kingdom? Like, how do, how do I understand the domain where I have say so? Well, there are three things make up your kingdom and everybody else's kingdom, uh, really general. Um, your kingdom is made up, first of all, of what we have. Our kingdoms, and this is all in your notes, if you want to follow along in your outline, you can do that. Our kingdom consists, first of all, of what we have. And you have, first of all, a body. Your body is, is central to your kingdom. You have say-so over your body, unless we have an illness um, of some kind that prevents us from having control. If you tell your body to do something, it will do that thing. You have say-so. You get to decide what you do with your own body. It's part of your kingdom. You have it. Um, <clears throat> maybe you have a family. Uh, your, your family is kind of part of your kingdom. You may have a certain amount of authority in your family. I have three kids. They're, they're 10, 8, and 6. I have a fairly high amount of authority in my family right now. Right now. My authority is quickly diminishing, right? As, as my kids, right, the, the older they get, the less and less authority I have. So I have to use it very wisely and quickly. Um, and so family, is, it's a part of our kingdom. Um, and then the big one is our stuff. You have stuff. You've got uh, maybe a house or an apartment. You've got your car. You've got um, a bank account, investments. You've got stuff that has your name on it. You have stuff that you have keys to, right? And who holds the keys holds the power. Uh, go ahead and if you have keys with you this morning, pull your keys out of your pocket, pull them out of your purse, whatever, and just go ahead and hold them. Hear that, hear that jingle of keys. All right, there you go. Very nice. You hear that? You feel the power? Very nice. So go ahead and hold your keys, hold them out in your hand. Your keys represent your stuff, these things that you have, what you hold. Um, and there's an incredible amount of, of power that comes in these things. And we can find a tremendous amount of value in the stuff we have. This is a part of our kingdom. So you can go ahead and set your keys in front of you somewhere. You can set them on your lap or whatever, then the chair beside you. We'll come back to them. But that's not just our kingdom. is what we have. Our kingdom is also what we do. It's what we do with our bodies. It's what we do in the world. We get value from, from the stuff we create, from what we do, how we work in the world, the things that we're good at. If you are a student, then what you do is go to school. And what you do is, is play sports. What you do is, is learn. And it's a valuable thing. It's a part of your kingdom, your domain. If you work, whether it's in the home or in the marketplace, what you do matters. It's, it's a part of your domain. Um, some of you are retired. And so you don't do the things you used to do. 
but you still do stuff. You, you have hobbies, you serve, you volunteer. You are still adding value to the world. This is what we do, and we can find a tremendous amount of value from that. It's a part of our kingdom. But then the third big component, what we do, what we have, the third one is what people say about us. Our street cred, our reputation. Now, 20 years ago, your reputation only came up when people, when your name came up in conversation at the coffee shop. What did people say when they, when they mentioned your name at the coffee shop? Like, what was the, the conversation like at that point? But today, <clears throat> it's a whole lot more, like, sort of right in our face all the time through social media. What people are saying about you is only as fresh as your last post and how many followers you have and how many likes your last post got and how many, how many, um, um, views your last video got. And so we can, we can like all of a sudden we our, our value, our kingdom can start to shake because people aren't saying anything. You like put this post out in the world and like it's crickets on the internet. Like nobody cares about what I have to say or what I do anymore. Or likewise, if, if like, oh no, there's all this chatter about these things that I'm posting, man, I, I get a lot of value from that. This is part of our kingdom, what people say about us. What we do, what we have, what people say about us. That's our kingdom. Does that make sense? Now, some of you might be saying, okay, I'm, I'm thinking about this. Like, okay, but my kingdom is like, my kingdom is really small. Like, I don't, I don't have a very big kingdom at all. Others of us <clears throat> have a pretty massive kingdom. Like, we've got lots of authority. We've got lots of say, so we've got lots of keys. But here's the thing is no matter how small our kingdom is or how big our kingdom is, we, we usually tend to operate by saying, the point of life is to expand the borders of our kingdom. If, I, if my domain can just be bigger, if I can have more authority, if I can have more wealth, if I can acquire more things, if I can get that promotion and get people to think better of me, it's going to be good. It's going to be better. Like the bigger the kingdom, the better. And then once we have the stuff, what do we have to do with it? Protect it. Preserve it. Secure it. Insure it. Lock it up so that nobody else can have access to it. So we we expand our kingdom and then we protect our kingdom. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the the futility of this way of thinking. Is that your kingdom and my kingdom, they're temporary. They're vulnerable. They will only last a very, very short time. And here's an example. Um, So my wife uh, wanted to like kind of reorganize and so she's, She's cleaning out our son's closet. And his, his closet kind of functions as a storage closet for, because little small clothes, you have extra space, you know, to store, store things. Um, and so we are going through this closet, and in the back of the closet, like one of the last things hanging on the rack, dig out this gem from the glory days. Right? Wrapped in plastic, hanging on a hanger in the back of the closet. Now, when I put this on, I don't want to shock you guys by how cool I used to be, but uh, I realize some of you may be be shocked. This is a a Letterman jacket from Highland High School in Berlin, Ohio. Uh, This was back in the day when they put your ACT scores on the front of your Letterman jacket. (laughs) Yep. Um, And this uh, is known as Miller Soccer Track back in the day. This jacket for me uh, represents like the height of glory. 
right? I, I remember as a junior high kid, a freshman in high school, like looking at those others, those older kids who had these these Letterman jackets that had a letter because they were good at sports and, and they had you know these pins on them and they were just kind of decorated with like, they, they were... They had accomplished something. They had achieved something. They had a kingdom that I wanted. And so like as a kid, I worked really, really hard to expand my kingdom. I worked really hard. And I went to a small school, so it was pretty easy to be good at sports. And I got pretty good at sports. And I, I had some trophies and medals and letters. And I wore this jacket around with pride until, until you get to a place where it's not so cool to wear your Letterman jacket anymore. Once you hit 36, it's cool to pull it back out. I wear this around town. So I don't do that. Um, this thing that I sacrificed for that represented like the pinnacle of glory for me, it sits in the back of my son's closet wrapped in plastic. It, it, it's like this, this faded glory that, that no longer matters. The next time this coat is going to be pulled out is going to be when one of my kids is invited to a 90s theme party. Oh, yeah, back in the day. Glory days. And that for me functions as an image of those things in in my kingdom and in your kingdom that we work so hard for. We work so hard for and we find so much value in and they're temporary and they're fleeting and someday they won't matter to us at all anymore. Someday my reign as king will be over. And so will yours. Someday my house will belong to someone else. Someday my stuff will belong to someone else. Someday my body will rebel against me and not listen to my will. And someday my trophies and all these relics of the glory days will be proudly displayed in the homes of my children. (laughs) Or end up in a landfill. Either way, I don't know. I don't know. We don't like to think about this stuff. It's not pleasant, but it is the truth. And this is what Daniel 5 is teaching us. It's that our, our kingdoms are diminishing. And they, they diminish quickly. In Daniel chapter 5, we pick up on the story um, years after Nebuchadnezzar has died. If you remember last year, and the story's kind of retold as I read it here, that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of the, the, the king who's at the pinnacle of, of the Babylonian Empire. And last week, Howard talked to us about how Nebuchadnezzar was so full of pride. And he said, look, look at my kingdom. It's, I'm on the throne. I did all this with my hands. And so God humbles him and, and sends him out to pasture. And um, he's, he's like, he loses his mind. And he's out with the beasts of the field. And uh, Howard showed this image of like, just like kind of weathered, grotesque look. Who's this man of the woods? Picture. That's not the picture. That's a different picture. Man of the woods. Because of his pride. Um, And some of you will get that, some maybe not. And so Nebuchadnezzar dies. And for seven years after Nebuchadnezzar dies, there's this game of thrones happening. There are three kings that rise to power and three kings are deposed. Incredibly violent, incredibly, you know, just kind of all this chaos and turmoil in the kingdom. So finally, this guy Belshazzar, he seizes power. And he does it by cooperating with his dad. So his dad is on the throne, he's on the throne, first in command, second in command, and that's why he makes the promise to anybody who can read the writing, you'll be third, right? You'll you'll, you'll be right beside us. So Belshazzar, he's on the throne, he's clutched the power. But all of this turmoil, all this chaos inside the kingdom, it has 
it has caused the glory and the power of the Babylonian kingdom to fade. And so his kingdom is diminished. But not only that, there's this huge threat from outside. That there is this new kingdom that's rising up, that's gaining steam, as there always is, another empire, another power structure. And this is the Medes and the Persians. They've, they've aligned themselves together and they are advancing on Babylon. And in fact, they have been camping outside the gate and sieging the city, putting the city under siege. So this is where Daniel chapter 5 happens. The writing is on the wall that his kingdom is very quickly going to be turned over to somebody else. How in the world do we deal with a diminishing kingdom? Like knowing that our kingdom, it's temporary, it's, um, it's not going to last forever. How do we deal with it? Well, Belshazzar, he, in chapter 5 here, he, he teaches us a couple of things, a couple of options for how we deal with our diminishing kingdoms. The first one is distraction. We can distract ourselves. He throws a party. Um, hey, the Medes and the Persians, they might come in and they might take our kingdom, but they're not going to get our wine because we're going to drink it all. So he gets a thousand people to come in and they throw this massive party. Um, and he just doubles down on what he's always been doing, just revelry and throwing this massive party. Um, but the problem is you can't drink it away. Another Justin Timberlake quote, never mind. Um, um, I, I did a tour of uh, City Beverage here in town. City Beverage is our Anheuser-Busch distributor here in Hutch. And I did a tour when I was a part of Leadership Reno County. And I remember the director of, Anheuser, of uh, City Beverage saying that alcohol is a recession-proof commodity. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, when life is good, what do people do? They drink and celebrate. And when life is bad, what do people do? They drink. This is what Belshazzar is doing. He's just trying to drink his troubles away. He's just going to throw a party. He's going to distract himself. And so what we can do when our kingdoms start to slip through our grasp and start to diminish, we can just do whatever it is that we have done to distract ourselves. We can just sort of go on spending sprees and we can eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And just kind of this hedonism. That's one option. Another option is we can relive the glory days. So what he does is interesting, isn't it? He, he calls, as he's having this party, he calls for the articles of the temple that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, which was like their greatest feat as an empire. That they destroyed the city that was, was supposed to never be destroyed. Uh, the God of Israel was defeated and the city was broken down and the temple was plundered and they carried these articles of the temple back and they put them in the temples of their gods. If you remember that story from Daniel chapter 1, this was 70 years earlier, and so here he is on the last night of his kingdom. He calls for these articles of the temple to come back. Why? It's to relive the glory days when we had power. Do you remember when we had power, when we were on top of the world? I can put on my letterman jacket and walk around the house and like remind myself of when I had hair, right? And when I had muscles, when we used to fit into those clothes, when we used to... You know, we walked into a place and people recognized us. And so this is one of, the, one of the ways we try to deal with our diminishing kingdom is we just try to relive the glory days. Did my life matter? And we tell ourselves stories and we look at our stuff and we cling to our stuff and say, no, my life mattered. This, this is worth something. And the third option is to white-knuckle it. I mean, just, you clutch your kingdom with all the power you can grasp. And this is, this is, right, this is what he does. He, he says, I still have power. And so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to use my power to put a purple robe and a gold necklace on Daniel, even though he doesn't want it. Daniel's like, keep your gifts, keep them for somebody else. 
But he's like, no, I have the power. I'm going to do it. And this is what we can do. When our, when our kingdom starts to diminish, we can just grasp it. We can clutch it as tightly as we can. And, and, and what can start to happen is that when our kingdom shrinks, we can actually become more abrasive. We can become more demanding. We can actually become more of a tyrant because we don't have as much. The less we have to control, the more controlling we can become. This is our story. This is a story of how we deal with the diminishing kingdom. But the writing is on the wall. This, this divine graffiti that is so brilliant, so compelling, and it fills Belshazzar with so much fear. And we can be gripped with fear too. Like, what, what am I going to be? Who am I going to be when my kingdom is gone? When I don't hold the keys anymore? And, and that's the fear that Belshazzar feels. Now there's a... As we talk about the divine graffiti here in Daniel 5, I want to talk about some other graffiti. A graffiti artist who's probably the most well-known graffiti artist around the world. His name is Banksy. How many of you have heard of Banksy? Uh, made the news this last week. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, Banksy uh, got famous like maybe 15 years ago now by um, this, this really funny and um, political and prophetic graffiti art on walls around London. And Banksy has become, nobody knows him, his, his identity is, is um, unknown, but his works have become, like to have a Banksy um, on your wall is like one of the highest honors, because his, his artwork is, like just think about this for a second, like all good art points to a truth that everybody else sees but nobody notices. All good art points out something that says, wait a second, I... There's a truth in that we need to see, we need to hear. And this is maybe one of Banksy's um, most popular works, this little girl releasing this heart-shaped balloon into the world. And it says over the top right-hand corner, there's always hope. She's like releasing hope. And so Banksy, um, by the way, I love this. Like, I, I think it was 2007, he broke into four museums, really prestigious museums in New York City, like snuck one of his own paintings in, to each of these museums under a trench coat and hung them on the walls in the museum to do reverse theft. Like, he's not stealing paintings. He's putting paintings on the walls in these museums. I think that is the funniest thing ever. So this is what Banksy does. So this last week, uh, he makes a print of this particular this particular image here. And it's sold at this really prestigious um, art auction um, in London. And the bidding goes on, and um, the final bid on this piece is $1.4 million. Somebody wants to own this thing for $1.4 million. And as the gavel falls, many of you have heard the story, right? You've seen it in the news. What happens? It self-destructs. There's a shredder built into the bottom of the picture frame that shreds this painting that is just sold for a fortune. Like, how many of you, like, watch that and were just like, that is the most brilliant thing I have ever seen? Now, by the way, they didn't charge the people. One, when you pay $1.4 million for a piece of art and it self-destructs, you don't have to pay for it, just in case any of you are in that world. Um, it, it shreds itself, right, as the person who, who, before they can possess it, it's gone. Is that brilliant? What's he saying? You see, when his graffiti is on the, on the wall... Who owns it? Everybody owns it. 
Right? You can, you can drive by and you can appreciate it, but you can't possess it. You can appreciate art, but you can't own it. Because the moment you try to own it, the moment you try to clutch it, the moment you try to grasp it, the moment you try to get value from it and, and have it, it's gone. It's gone. This is, this is the, the message that Banksy is telling us. And this is the message of, of Daniel chapter 5, that we try to get so much value from what we have, from what we own, from what we do. And the, the, the message of the kingdom of God is to say, how can we live in this world and appreciate the goodness of life, appreciate the beauty that is all around us, appreciate the gift that is this moment that we live in, and yet the moment we try to clutch it, the moment we try to have it, it's gone. We lose the value of it. This is incredibly, incredibly powerful. See, Daniel, this whole story of Daniel, these first five chapters we've been talking about, are constantly pointing us to this reality that this world, that our kingdom, is not the highest good. It is not what we are called to live for. And Daniel is constantly pointing to a different way, to this kingdom of God. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, this is how Daniel chapter 2 ends, this amazing verse. He says, like, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and what does the text say? That will never be destroyed. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It itself will endure forever. That's what the story of Daniel is about, to say, like, we live in a world that's so fragile that we, we clutch to these things that are temporary, and we try to own them, and we try to possess them, and we try to get our value from them. But all of the while, God is coming, and he's setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will last forever, and you are invited into it. In fact, you are given access to it. Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has set up this kingdom and he has given you the keys of it to say, like, would you just come into my kingdom where you don't have to worry about enlarging and protecting your own resources? And the only, the only catch for Jesus to give us the keys to his kingdom is that we release the keys to ours. Is we say, you know what, everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that I do, everything people say about me, Jesus, I'm, I'm giving this to you. My whole identity will be found in you, not, not in any of these things. This is what Jesus teaches us. Jesus lost everything that was valuable. He lost his friends. He lost his status. He lost his life. And yet he gained everything. He gained everything. This is uh, this incredible message that the New Testament goes on to teach that Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he has invited us into a kingdom that will never diminish. In 1 Peter um, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, uh, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. You have an inheritance that will never perish spoil or fade. You have the gift through God's mercy of being included in a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that will endure forever, that you don't have to grasp and you don't have to try to secure and protect. 
And the, the invitation today is to simply release, to release the keys of our kingdom to Jesus. And when we do that, when we do that, when we release the keys of our kingdom to Jesus, do you know what he does? He says, okay, I own them now. So, what you do. Don't, don't get your value from what you do, because someday you won't do it anymore, and then you won't know who you are. But while you do that thing that you're doing, do it for me. And do it for my glory. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so he gives us, he gives us meaningful work to do in the world, but we don't do it for value, we do it for the kingdom. Uh, for the things we have, Jesus gives us the keys back. And he says, okay, you've got stuff. You've got a house, you've got a car, you've got a, a bank account, you've got investments, you've got all of these things. But don't hold on to these things because they're going to give you something that they can't possibly give you. But would you use them for my kingdom, for my purposes? Would you bless people with them? Enjoy them, but don't find your security in there because they're vulnerable. Someday they'll be gone. And Jesus says, um, don't put your trust in what other people are saying about you because public opinion is going to rise and fall very, very quickly in your life. And, and you're going to rise and fall with it if that's where your value is. But Jesus says you are included in the family of God. You are a child of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. You're a disciple of Jesus. You are an heir of the kingdom of God. And when you find your value there, you don't need to find it in what other people say about you. This is the invitation today. I'd invite you again, take out your keys if you got them. If you don't have your keys, take out your phone. Your phone is kind of your passport to the world these days and kind of represents the kingdom that you hold in your hand. Worship team can come on up. So go ahead as we, as we worship, go ahead and stand. Uh, I invite you to stand and take your keys, take your phone. And if you're, if you are, um, if you're interested in this, if you are interested in, in saying, Jesus, I'm all in, I, I'm in your kingdom, not my own. And just take your keys, take your phone and hold it out in front of you as we pray as an act of submission of, of open handedness with what God has given you. God, thank you that you have invited us into a way of being that is so much more fulfilling full of so much more life than we could ever have by grasping. And so, God, I pray that you would set us free. God, some of us, we, we have just been doubling down on these patterns of behavior because we don't know what else to do. And, and it's just, it's not working for us. And so, Jesus, in this moment, set us free. Set us free from the lie that we are what we do, we are what we have, we are what people say. And speak to us the truth by the power of your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Holy God that is within us. Speak to us the truth that our value comes from you, Jesus, from what you have done, from your life, from your death, from your resurrection. God, flood us with a new identity. God, as we hold these keys out, as we hold our, a symbol of our kingdom, we ask you, Jesus, to take it. God, to take it from our hands to release us from needing to rule in our lives and that you would teach us how to live in your kingdom, how to live open-handed and generous, God, with, with freedom and joy that comes that only you can give, Jesus. We ask that you would move in our hearts in Jesus' name.